Locks in the Bagel is a production of Kenjamin Media, a curated series of conversations about things that matter. For more information about our podcast, please go to KenjaminMedia.com. It's not her fault. It's her, res- but it is her responsibility. Well, that's nice. Yeah, I think that's fair. And again, as a parent, I mean, the story of your mother going to therapy in her 80s to talk about one of the most painful, if not the most painful experience she ever had in her life that she'd never talked about, but because you wanted to and it was important to you because you also had the experience, uh, an experience of it. I mean, that's powerful. And, and the opposite of that, I would argue in some ways, is that experience I had with my mother over and over and over again, culminating in the most meaningful weekend of my life, you know, her not capable of not making it about her own feelings of hurt at that she wasn't highlighted as the person the most meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. And then there was another incident that weekend also that my mother, similar, but it's no point in beating a dead horse. But um, anyway, so that so that's my that's my experience of losing uh, my. Parents. I'm not sure you've ever met a dead horse that you, that was not worth beating. Okay, don't be making fun of horses, my friend. You remember what Winston Churchill said: "No hour of life is wasted that is spent in the saddle." <laughs> yeah, I have no idea what means. You're like Jen. It's not going to be cancer. Don't worry. Did you do that? No, because I I know she's very sensitive to that. That's lovely. It's thoughtful of you. So you didn't minimize. No, I I laid into it. I said it's probably just cancer. Don't worry about it. Oh no, that's that's horrible. No, that's no, a, you can't no, say that to Jennifer. No, no, you can say that to me. Oh that, wait, wait. You that, forgot. You got confused because people always used to say we were married when we were kids. I got confused. No, I didn't do that. I didn't do either. I didn't lean into it. I just I you know what I said? Like okay, I don't know. I just said okay, I'll go. That's and it. Did I she didn't... say I don't think you're taking this seriously enough, or she said thank you for going? What, what was her she response? Said, Thanks for going. That's it. Okay. And so you've gone now. So the doctor there, said, and the doctor said, I think it's it's just a sunspot. Don't worry about it. But this thing on your leg, I am worried about. <laughs> <laughs> There's no good. Nothing good comes from the phrase "this thing on your leg." Nothing good comes from the beginning. <laughs> that this is the start of any phrase. Wait. So, so what? What is this thing on your leg? Yeah, there's there are two things that no good comes from this thing on your leg, and we have to talk. Or I have good news and bad news. Also, is usually mostly the bad news. But anyway, so what's the thing on your leg? Did they to cut it and take a biopsy or some they sort? Did. They cut the whole thing off, and it's are sending in part of my Holy leg f- to be biopsy. Wait, it's tiny. Wait. I'm pretty sure it was a freckle. I've had it for years, and then she used the word globule. How often have you? use the word globule yourself or been in the presence of a medical professional who used the word globule in reference to anything on you or your body. That's never happened. And I, by the way, I think that's a made up word. I don't think they meant that. (laughs) That's what they say when they don't know what to say. I said, what this thing, it's a, it's a freckle, right? I've had it for years. I've never, she goes, yeah, but look at this. And then she called, she was, there was a resident and she goes, Doctor, come over here and look. It was one of those things. Doctor, come look at this. And then that's she pulls out this, this scope. Yeah, that's also never good. No, that come look at this. Le- it's never that good. Thing, wait, that thing on your leg, we have to talk. And doctor, come look at this are three things you never want to hear. No, because that either leads to a mock, a festival of mockery or some type of cancer. Those so, are the only two options. Well, I, don't, I don't think I really don't think this thing is going to be cancer. But it turns apparently there's some uh, inconsistency of, of coloration and apparently as well globule. I don't know what that really means in this context, but uh, they cut it off or out or away and they are sending it off. Uh, I'm, not, 
cancer. I'm not so happy. So let's use the globule and the thought of cancer as a transition. <laughs> I love, you know, I love you these know, that's actually a pretty good transition for today's topic. It is actually it is. It's not like tombstones, but it's a it's a good transition. It, well, tombstones not irrelevant either to this topic. The topic of today's podcast is losing your parents. As men of our age, people, you get to be a certain age, you start to lose your parents. And it it's something, by the way, nobody prepares you for this culturally. There's no there are books written about it, but nobody talks to you about what it's like to lose your parents. And I remember a phrase from a movie, and God, I'm so frustrated. I can't remember the movie. I want to say it could have been Billy Crystal, but I don't think it was. But let's say it could have been or Bruno Kirby, but I'm sure it wasn't. I just like the name Bruno Kirby, by the way. Um, Bruno Kirby was in Godfather 2. Do you know who Bruno Kirby played in Godfather 2? Yes, he played the the young. That's right. You're moving toward it. You're almost there. Did he play oh, the, cool. the, the the young Luca Brazzi? No. He played the young. Um, yeah, he. I can't remember now. Who, who did he play? Clemenza. Oh, you played the young Clemenza. Remember, they go Robert De Niro, and they go to steal a rug. Robert De Niro thinks they're doing something else, and they end up stealing this rug. And he he has the gun pointed toward the doorway, and thinking the cop is going to come in, but he doesn't. And yeah, it's a good scene. It's a good scene. He's a great actor of that era. Um, but the line that I was going for, that I thought that it might be Billy Crystal said, and somebody said this in the movie, and it's just stayed with me. And then after my dad died, it really resonated for me. He says, "I don't know if I can live in a world without my parents." I don't know. It just stuck with me. That whole idea of, you know, no matter how old you are, your parents are still your parents. There's no one in the world anymore for whom I am the most important person. I think I think that is powerful because because you're you're not your child's most important person in the same way you are your parents' most important person. I think that's generally true. Oh, I, I absolutely think that's true. That's certainly been my certainly been my experience. That is true. And um, so so I want to talk about something else that I wasn't sure I wanted to talk about. But, you know, you both your parents are dead. That's how you've lost them. Completely. Uh, my father died, but my mother is not dead. And I I would argue I've lost her, too. We haven't spoken in eight years since my we actually haven't spoken since my father died. Um, and that is a whole different kind of loss that relates to this idea that you just posited. Of, of of the parent being the most important thing. It also relates to an idea that I hear so much in our culture on TV and on film that really, you know, it, it this is we're we're gonna we're gonna do our segment now. What makes you crazy? What brings you joy? Or we what we like to call it's gin and tonic time. It's, it's time for gin and tonic. What yeah. makes you crazy? What brings you joy? So what makes me crazy in this moment is this this thing, this trope, this idea you hear always in the culture, in movies and films and books, that, that blood is thicker than water, that family is everything, and that your family never leaves you. They're always there for you. Okay, let me say this. That has not been my experience at all in any way. In fact, my experience makes that phrase seem a preposterous, and it frustrates me all the time because it's such a widely held view. That right, family is everything. If you if you need anything, you go to your family. Your family's always there for you. And the parent-child relationship that you just articulated to me, right? You're always the parent. So there is a hierarchy in a parent-child relationship, right? I feel there is. I feel a responsibility as a parent that I don't feel as a child. And I feel a need for my parent to to always be there for me in a way that I don't feel a need my child to be, for my child to be. Do you know what does that make sense? Makes perfect sense, yeah. So that is what drives me crazy this week. And we'll get into the parent thing later. But um, tell me what drives you crazy this week. 
You know what makes me crazy? I don't. That's why I asked. Tell me. Talking on your speakerphone in public. What the fuck is this? <laughs> That's do you remember? So, so now I'm going to tie into our last episode. I'm going to tie do an Albert Brooks tie in. Excellent. Do you remember? In- oh, wait, you have to, you have to drink. Anytime you mention Albert Brooks, you have to, <laughs> the drinking game at the locks in the bagel podcast. Anytime you heard the name Albert Brooks, shot of tequila. Okay. For your listeners, take your do shot. Do you remember from, what was it? Uh, you know, the thing where he, you have to argue for your life. What was it? That was the movie. Defending your life with Meryl Streep. Yeah. So do you remember he, how he dies in that movie? I think it's in a car crash or in the beginning of the movie, he gets into this car crash, which uh, is this sort of, you know, triggering event. And he's listening to Barbara Streisand. He's in his convertible and he's blasting Barbara Streisand. And somebody drives by and says, yells out the window, do we all have to listen to that crap? <laughs> and it's kind of like how I feel when I'm in a public place and someone mm-hmm. is having a loud, loud private conversation, by the way. Right. Loud. Yeah, loud on their speakerphone. Makes me insane you have no expectation of privacy in a public space so people who think they're having a private conversation they get annoyed at you for listening to their private conversation i went to law school or at least i like to tell people i did and um i can tell you there's no expectation of privacy in a public space so just keep that in mind folks yeah that is incredibly annoying and that's something that people don't think is annoying like it's hard for me to imagine i see people's faces when other people say to them could you please tone that, turn that down? And their their incredulousness in response. They're like, "What are you talking about? Stay out, mind your business." Exactly, mind your business. It's like well, you know what my grandmother Ruth you know what? used to say to my grandpa Jerry. You know what? Right now, your business is my business because you're talking on your speakerphone in a public place. Yeah, public. The keyword there is public. If I come into your house and sit on the floor of your bedroom while you're on the phone, then you have an argument. I have two connected thoughts to this. One, I one time witnessed somebody pull up. I worked at a at a uh, a nonprofit whose sole purpose was, um, you know, educating people on and preventing and counseling survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault, right, and stalking. And somebody was right outside that building when I happened to be there. A woman was screaming and running down the street, running away from a car, purely a coincidence. And this dude was in the car and he gets out and he starts screaming. And I come up and I say, are you okay? And she's grabbing her shoes and he's yelling at her to get back in the car, which she's doing, by the way. Right. And, I, and I say again, are you okay? Do you need help? And the guy tells me to mind my fucking business. Yeah. And in a great moment that was perfectly appropriate, I looked at him. I felt like fucking Batman. And I said, this is my business. And then the other thing was, oh, well, the blood was thicker than water thing. I'm going to go back to the thing that annoys you so much. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, we could do a whole episode on just blood is thicker than water. Right. But and choosing know, my, a family versus being born into a family. Yeah, yeah. My dad actually asked me that once. My dad was constantly feuding with um, his brother. Wait, I, your dad I, was involved in feuding with people? That's shocking to me. Yeah, There's gambling going on here. Yeah, I know. So he was, he was constantly feuding with his brother. Um, I recall that. Literally, I mean... They suit each other all the time. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. 
<laughs> nice. That's nice. Yeah, they were tight. That's yeah. how they, they communicated they love. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Yeah. They're a great bridge team. Anyway, um, and he one time asked me, I remember this so vividly, do you think blood is thicker than water? And at that moment, because I think I was, um, I don't like 13, 14, 15, maybe. Mm-hmm. But at that time, I said, yes. He said, he, he said, I don't. But he was a lot ass- of an asshole. He was a lot of an asshole. Yes. But, you know, later on, of course, he and I had a lot of difficulties. And those words kind of came back to him because he and I did not have a great relationship. And I didn't, you know, the path that I chose really was not a blood is thicker than water path. You know, and then in the end, ironically for him, uh, I, I, well, and for me, you know, yeah. he kind of made me pay for it, literally. Yeah, because he's like, well, you, you know, you weren't, you, you, know, you didn't do the things that I want, that you should have, that you should have done be, as my, as my son. And I'm like, you're the one who said blood's not thicker than water. That's intense. But on a lighter note, this is the longest period in my life that I've gone without seeing either Casablanca or the Maltese Falcon. Something is wrong. I got I to gotta, I gotta figure that out. Anyway, I digress. We're talking about, you asked me what, what uh, brings me joy. And the thing that brought me joy this week, it happened today, actually. Um, prior to the dentist, I did something that I literally haven't done in months. I went to a, uh, a Starbucks. I'm not a coffee drinker. I like iced tea. And uh, there was one block from the dentist's office, there was a Starbucks. And one of the joys of the last decade of my life has been spending time working in coffee shops, having great conversations with strangers, meeting people. It's what I love to do, and I'm good at it, and I love doing it. Uh, and this last eight months, have basically it's taken away from me, and it's been really hard and really, really, really a struggle for me to find connection in the world just being all by myself. But that having said, today I went to this Starbucks, a block from the dentist, and they are, by the way, that's the only coffee shop I know of that I've seen recently that actually has people sitting inside, which kind of freaked me out, to be honest with you, but that's not the part that brought me joy. I ordered an iced tea. I went out to one of the outside tables. I sat outside for about 20 minutes and I just sat there and I just watched people walk by and I just enjoyed the world in a way that I really haven't enjoyed it in the last six or seven months. And it just felt so, I hate this word, but I'm going to use it. It just felt so normal and it felt really good. It's, it was really good. So that, that's what brought me joy. I was very present. I've been, I've been in 1942 for about five weeks. So that's, it's much better to be present. The war, the bombing in in Germany, it was a lot of pain. So anyway, I don't know why I was in 1942, but let's just say it was amused me. Not such an amusing time, by the way. I don't know. I have a weird fascination with World War II and have since I was a kid. I'm not sure what that's about. Maybe it's a mommy issue. Anyway, what brought you joy? If you said I have a weird fascination with cellophane. Cellophane reminds me of uh, Studio 54 in the 70s when I was eight. I never, I was never there, but that's what it reminds me of. Anyway, Andy Warhol, some drugs and, and the 1970s. Three things I never did. But anyway, go ahead. What brings you joy this week? Andy Warhol, drugs and cellophane, three things you, you never do did. Didn't do Andy Warhol, no. Tell me, tell me what brings you joy this week. Okay. What brings me joy? Yes. Oh, so the question no, is, what that's brings, easy. Me, what what brings is joy in general? Joy we all love our kids. We all love coddled eggs and caviar. We all love a good, you know, godfather watching. Everybody loves. I mean, that's universal. But what brings you joy this week? You know what's bringing me a lot of joy this week? The conversation with my wife is bringing me a lot of joy this week. And and the same. And interestingly, a lot of the same thing that you you just described, mm. which was. It yeah. just felt so. There just felt so present. We get along very well. We're both very companionable. Uh, mm-hmm. 
and and obviously we we listen to one another but yeah. there's also a quality of things rushing by and right. and the lots of things happening simultaneously in our home between what we're doing and what we want to be talking about and being interrupted by our daughter and yep yeah and i've just had a, a real sense of sort of slowing down and really well that's very sweet really truly just listening and being present with her so that's been nice all right so let's get into the meat the meat of it as it is uh, as it were just because i feel like there should be a song but anyway, what was the experience of anticipating your mother dying? Because she was sick, and there was some kind of anticipation that she was going to die, right? Talk to me a little bit about your your experience of anticipation of that, what that what that time frame felt like to you. It, it yeah. felt, here, I'm going to use the word that you hate. I mean, but it it felt normal because this was this was this had become my new normal. She she was. Uh, growing more sick. She had been um, diagnosed with cancer. Oh, here. Okay. This is an important story that relates t- to this theme, to to the thing that you said about blood being thicker than mm-hmm. water and, and not blood being thicker than water. The thing we were talking about before about no, I, I will no longer be mm-hmm. um, the most important person to anybody anymore. When my mom was dying of a cancer, so I told my mom that she was dying of cancer. We got the results from her test back, and I went to her room, her hospital room, to say, Mom, you have cancer, and it's metastasized to your liver. And the first thing yeah. she said was, well, I've lived a good life. The second thing she said, the very next thing she said after learning of her imminent death was, why aren't you wearing a jacket? It's cold. I was 50 years old when she said that. It didn't matter that I was 50 years old. There was never a moment in her life when she didn't care about what, about my welfare and what was happening. There was never a moment when I was not the most important thing. I just told her she was going to die and she was concerned about whether I was dressed warmly enough. I just, uh, my mentor just told me about the last words his father ever uttered which he was literally on his deathbed. And the last words he uttered were, do you kids have enough gas to get home? So you just said something that really stood out for me. Tell me what you said again. Now I can't remember the language. Something about you're always being the most important person. Okay, yes, what I wanted to I, add I, to that was... I was always was, the yes, most important person. And how did you know life. that? Because she communicated things to you in a way that made you feel that way, right? Like that, that comment, like, why don't you have your jacket? Like She would say things to you that exactly. made you believe and know that she was always looking out for you that she always cared yes right. and i might add i did not understand that entirely or or at, at a level yeah, that i course. do now but the thing that really that, uh, until that i so had my own child biting or cutting whatever the word is that rips your heart out kind of thing for me about that is is that that idea that you know, like some people will say, I mean, this this is analogous to the way people in relationships or men have always been perceived in relationships like or dads too. like, you know, you know how I feel. Right. The the you know how I feel. I don't have to say it. And or, you know, I'm thinking about you. I don't have to say it or do it. You know, I mean, it doesn't have specifically those words don't have to be said. Actions can be taken, though, that support those words. Right. So, you know, by somebody's actions or their words or both. But, you know, by something being done by them some performance, and I don't mean that in any negative way, some performance of love, whether it's words, actions, deeds, whatever, that's communicated to you that makes you feel that way, right? Is that accurate? Are you saying that 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 the the idea of, well, you know how I feel, is 
Can, can you just say a little bit more about what what were you? Yeah, what I were think you that you know how I feel. When people is, say, "Well, you know how often, I feel," often uh, param- uh, related to you don't know how I feel because when somebody says, "You know how I feel," that that's something happening in somebody's yeah, head right? is not something that another person has any awareness of. So I think that's unhealthy in a relationship, and I think it's unhelpful, and I think it's caused a lot of pain for many, 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 many people. That idea that you think somebody knows how you feel about them when you've never said or done anything that supports that. And if it's a relationship you have that's ongoing, regular, like a parent-child or a you know spouse or partner, then those actions need to go happen regularly, right? It's not like, well, you just know. You just know because I'm alive in the world. You just know because by the way, because blood is thicker than water. That's the kind of underlying idea behind, you know how I feel because you're, we're related. People just assume that. And in my experience as both a human and a therapist, um, when you don't perform the, the expression of love or people don't like the word performance because they think it feels artificial, but I don't mean it that way. When you don't practice, I will say, when you're not, when part of your practice of love is not either words or deeds that support what you feel, what you say, um, then the other person doesn't know. And I think men in particular are not taught that at all. In fact, I think historically we've been taught the opposite of that. We've been taught the, well, you know how I feel bullshit. We've been taught the, I'm your father, you know I love you, or I'm your husband, you know I love you, without any actions that support that. And by the way, actions and actions, words and actions together are life, our relationship. Without them, there there's no relationship. And this is the point I wanted to bring up about my mother and my relationship or or lack thereof. As a parent, and this is, this is, you say this all the time, like I didn't know these things until I became a parent. Well, I've been a parent for a lot longer than you have. And I can tell you as, and I've, I have a lot of failings as a parent, a lot of positives, both are true for me. Um, but one of the things as a parent, I can't imagine is my, is, something I could never imagine doing is not speaking to my daughter for eight years because I think she's mad at me or doesn't like me or hates me or thinks I was a bad father when she was a child. I can't imagine her, um, I can't imagine making a decision to not speak to her for eight years because it's too painful for me and I'm not willing to hold that pain in a way that allows my child to express their experience. And that's my relationship with my mother. Um, And it's painful it's painful on some level to me, but it's not painful every day in the way that people think it is because I've, I've sort of made, have a relationship with that pain. Um, because for me, a relationship absent, what I said before, a relationship absent, the performance, the practice of love, whatever that looks like, and it's different. It's not, there's not one way to do that, but a relationship absent the practice of love that just holds the assumption of love to me is not a relationship I can be in. And I would say further, and I'll finish with this is the pain that comes from not feeling loved or not feeling that thing you got from your mother, from my mother in a way that the culture prescribes us to believe is meaningful. And that's hard to step away from, you know, the parent has some, I think the parent has some responsibility to hear the child. They don't have to agree. I mean, the thing is, I had an experience growing up that is different than my mother's experience of our relationship growing up, right? It's just different. And I don't not, and I never said to my mother, mm-hmm. her experience was wrong or bad, which she had said to me, by the way, that my experience was not the way it happened. You know, people mm-hmm. experience things differently. 
And my idea as both, again, a person and a therapist and a qualification I don't think need, I need to make, but for some reason I feel the need to make it because it just says I have some experience talking to lots of other people about these kinds of things. It's not only my own experience I'm talking from. That's the reason I think I say it. But my experience is that uh, hearing the other is really important in a relationship. Hearing the other's experience as their experience, not without saying, it, without trying to change it or tell them it's wrong. But that's but that's the but that's the rub because I think a lot of people right m- m- most people aren't practiced at that yeah. most people don't have that that most people don't know how to yeah. do that most people don't know how to be curious about the other's experience without feeling like or feeling that the other person blames them when they never ever use that word or phrase at all and don't feel that way but just want you to hear their experience of their life. And let's be fair, most people right. are not accustomed to um, articulating their experience without using the language of accusation. But when people don't have that experience, they it's almost impossible in my to hear anything that doesn't feel like blame or accusation. And it's very challenging. And I tried for years to have conversations with my mother about my experience because I was struggling with my childhood experience in my 30s and 40s. You know, it doesn't, it's not linear. It's not like you, you, you have it, then in your 20s, you work it all out. And then you're, by your 30s, you're all done. You know, I mean, that's great if that's your experience, but that wasn't mine. And I wasn't present in my own emotional life in my teens, 20s, and early 30s to be even in a place of beginning to understand and put language to my own experience and how it was impacting me then in the present. You know, people, one of the other things I hate that drives me crazy is people will in relationships of any kind will say, well, that's your stuff from your past. Like, don't put that on me. Well, I'm not putting it on you, but if my past is affecting our present, then that's your stuff too. If you want to be in a relationship with me, right. It has to be or else. Or else- no, it's, then it's, it's, our, then it's our stuff. It's, it's well. What I say is, it's the relationship stuff. That's what I say. But as I said, but I say that all the time. Right. That's exactly it's, right. It's so my mother stuff. could never see, and I remember this was the pivotal moment for me, and it was it was very hard. My daughter, who was, God, I don't even remember. It's hard to put these things into time frames. But I, I'm going to say my daughter was a teenager, and we were out for brunch with my daughter, my mother, her husband, and my mother's stepsister, um, who had an on again, off again relationship with many years, and. We we're at this lovely spot having brunch, and I, I was trying to have a conversation with my mother about something that was causing me pain. I may have been in graduate school becoming a therapist at the time. It may have been that may have been what brought all of that stuff into the into conversation for me is wanting to deal with it, wanting to have some conversations about things I had never dealt with before. They thought it might be helpful. Uh, and I and by the way, I was using that kind of language that you and I had both learned in the narrative therapy that we practiced, that language that invites others, that's non-judgmental, that's non-blaming, intentionally so, that says basically, this was my experience of what happened, and this is how it made me feel. And this, I'm talking all from my experience perspective, not, and I never said anything like you did or you shouldn't, or I'm saying that my experience supported this feeling to me that made me feel unwanted, unloved, that that I couldn't go to you, that every time I spoke to you, all I felt was judgment. And so it shut me down. It shut me down from being able to have a safe place, which is what I thought a parent, what I was taught anyway, and what everybody in our culture is taught, that a parent is a safe place. Um, And my mother couldn't hear it. I mean, this was, again, I was in my late 30s, maybe, and my daughter was a teen, or maybe my early 40s, and my daughter was a teenager. And and it was all just, it was just trying to have this conversation. And it started off just kind of at this level, 
And then I started to get very emotional. I started to cry at this table, um, at the not this table, at the table then. And then we walked down the street. This was in Venice, in California. We walked down the street, and I was trying to talk to my mother. And I kept saying to my mother, "You're not listening to my experience." She says, "Well, I I, I can't hear this if you're just going to blame. You know, I get it. You blame me for everything. You know that whole like encapsulating my whole life in one little sentence from the other's perspective, right? People do this all the time. A lot of men do this in therapy. Like, well, that mm-hmm. you know." If you're going to talk to me, I just can't, you know, if you're going to blame me for everything, fine. I get, and then she said this, she said, oh, I get it. I'm not the mother you wanted. Well, that's not helpful. <laughs> you know, like that's not helpful. Is that helpful, Josh? And how am that I supposed to respond helpful. to that? Not in, I mean, that's that, not in my, not, a, not like, in my, all, I, all I'm saying is why won't you listen to my experience? Uh, and I said, I remember saying this through my tears, by the way, like, this is my experience. This isn't true. It's not a truth. This isn't what happened. This is how I experienced what happened. I understand you don't, you had a different experience of that. You know, I was trying to be very therapeutic in my conversation. Of course, sometimes when you try to be that way, it just annoys the fuck out of people, right? Because they're just like, they don't want to hear it. But my mother just couldn't hear it because I, and I know, and I feel badly for her because I know her experience and she just feels attacked. She just feels like, like I didn't love her. Or she wasn't good enough, which is the way she grew up feeling with her six stepmothers. Right. Well, because I, th- I mean, I think part of what you're saying is you what, what you I, I think what you were tr- trying to say. I mean, tell me if I'm getting this right. But, you know, do you care that this was my experience? That's the thing. I mean, that's the that's the essence of it. I mean, that is the line I used to use in therapy with couples all the time when when a woman would say like you feel like she was being abused, whether mostly emotionally and verbally, not so much physically, I didn't have a lot of experience with that, but, but that line about like, she's telling you now about her experience, how she feels hurt by you. Are you interested in hearing about her experience? That was the question. Because to me, if you answer no to that question, if you give the no, that's her shit. That's not my shit. You're not in a relationship. That's not a relational response. That's an individualistic response. Right. And people, and and my experience, sadly, is most that's more men say that. But again, mm-hmm. women, I'm sure, say that, too. But more men, in my experience, say that. And and that was sort of what my mother was saying. It's like, I'm not interested in your experience. That's your thing. Don't put that on me. I want to have a relationship with you. And if you can't hear my if you're not interested in my experience, I can't be in a relationship with you that that doesn't work for me. That just makes me feel bad again. That makes me feel like a 10-year-old boy crying on the floor of my shower because I had no one to go to when I didn't know what to do. I don't want to feel that way as a 40-year-old man. But that's where it took me to, that those times when I was 10 and 11 and 12, mm-hmm. when I would sit on the floor of my shower on Doheny, for those of you who know where I grew up, and 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 cry because I was scared and didn't know what to do and had nobody to talk to. I couldn't talk to my father because he just didn't know how to deal with that. He wasn't a bad guy. He was a good guy, really good. He just didn't, he didn't have that. And I couldn't talk to my mother because she wouldn't hear me. Even when I was 10, she just took everything as some personal attack. And I feel as a human, I feel for her experience. I, I've heard about her experience when she shared it with me of her childhood. And it was much worse in many obvious ways than mine. But mine was much worse in hidden ways that nobody saw which is much more painful in some ways because the hiding of it makes it so much more shameful as an adult and hard to, to find a way through it as an adult. You know, did that, did, did the hiding itself, I mean, obviously you're talking about a lot of pain, um, which, you know, you said as a 40 year old man, you, you know, these are not things you still want to be dealing with and talking about 
I'm wondering about the hiding and did the did that way of dealing with that problem become a way of dealing it it made with my problems. marriage my relationship from 19 years old to 30 year old with my ex-wife it made that impossible that relationship had no chance of being successful now there were other things wrong with that relationship that were mutual but because of what I brought to it I think that relationship had no chance of being successful uh, mm-hmm. there was no way for me to be have a meaningful relationship even though I was in it for a decade, there was no way for that relationship to be meaningful to me in a deep emotional level with with my feeling that I couldn't be who I was. I couldn't express any kind of honest uh, sense of, of what I grew up with because I thought it was shameful, first of all, and also because, again, like I hadn't been taught how to talk about it. I had no vehicle for that. And I didn't even know, like at the time, I didn't even know, right? I wasn't aware. I wasn't self-aware to the point of knowing about that. That took me like a couple of decades to to figure out. And graduate school to become a therapist really is where the, that really kind of crystallized for me because I had to, to look at it in ways I hadn't before. And people were challenging me in ways that nobody had ever challenged me before. Because my whole persona coming out of that experience with my mother and father was to keep people from challenging me. So I was big and, you know, arrogant and I was also incredibly kind and compassionate. By the way, I don't want to make it seem like I was just an asshole because I, occasionally I was, but more often than not, I was much more kind and, and compassionate. But but I kept people at a distance um, in a way that I didn't know how not to do that, which I would argue inhibits you know, connection. Not exposing yourself, not allowing yourself to be vulnerable in a way which shouldn't necessarily make you vulnerable because sharing honestly and with compassion your own experience to another who will hear it with compassion shouldn't be a vulnerable situation. It is because that's the world we live in. Um, so I say vulnerability, but it really, I mean, in a good, in a better world, it wouldn't be vulnerable, it would be human, right? It would be just me sharing. I mean, I think it affected our friendship dramatically too. I think that's one of the reasons mm-hmm. we had to have a break separation uh, uh, to our relationship because I just couldn't go any farther. I wasn't growing at that time in any meaningful way. I didn't know how. Uh, in fact, it terrified the thought of it. I, I, the thought of even yeah. starting that down that road was so overwhelming for me that I just didn't do it. Is that is that something that you're coming to now or did you know that at the time? No, no, I didn't know that. All I remember is the email you sent me which you said, when you said our time, to, I think our time together has ended, which, you know, was like somebody stabbing me in the heart and watching the blood flow out from my body all over the floor and then having it done again. Yeah, it was kind of harsh. I thought it was harsh. That's Even what now I said. when I look I back, I still think it was harsh. Ended. But I mean, I understand it, but I still, it's still, that's more painful than me than almost anything else that's ever happened to me. You were very dramatic emotionally in those days. Not that you're not still dramatic. I think some people would argue you are, but you were you were particularly yeah. dramatic. And I think you were making a, I mean, from my perspective on you, you were making a statement. You were, I mean, it's funny in some ways. I mean, you've said this to me before. I'm not your parent, but I think in some ways you were individuating from me um, because we were so closely connected in a way, in a, in a way that's mm-hmm. analogous to the way a parent mm-hmm. separates from a child. Not that that was our relationship, but you know what I mean? Like in that, in that, in that separation, I think we were so intertwined in a weird, I mean, not weird for us, but it was just weird culturally, but we were so interwoven in those years, in those teens and twenties years that I think, and because mm-hmm. you were trying, you were exploring parts of yourself and I didn't know how to, and I was kind of still hiding. 
I think there was nowhere for that to go either at that time um, because it was so intense. If we had had less of a closeness, then it probably would have been okay. We probably could have weathered it if we were just more casual with each other. But we were just so close that I don't think there was any way to weather it mm-hmm. without it breaking and then having yeah. to find it again in a different through a different thread yeah. years yeah. later. Yeah. Yeah. We were very, uh, very, yeah, it was, it was a closeness. And, and again, probably, you know, yeah. it was what it um, was, but, but it had to end in that way. It just like my marriage had to end because it was just, I mean, the marriage, we, we, we try, and this is the interest. This is so interesting about the marriage, right? We went to therapy three different times in my marriage. This is a decade before I became a therapist. We went to therapy three different times in my marriage, three different therapists. So there was a part of me that this is interesting, actually, because it's never just one thing, even though we remember it that way. There was a part of me that wanted to grow. I agreed to go to therapy three times. I may have even initiated that. I don't, I don't remember who did. But um, but I went and I wanted and, and talked, obviously, but I just wasn't being completely honest or honest in a way that felt any. I may have been honest, actually. I don't remember. But it wasn't honest in a way that 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 connected for me and allowed me to move forward um, because I don't think I was ever really dealing with the trauma. You know, there's a thing in therapy now that that's come in the more recent years called complex trauma. And it's often associated with like PTSD from like war zones and all that kind of stuff, really intense shit. But there's also a category of it that talks about the kind of neglect. And and even though it didn't look like I was being neglected, like I wasn't living in a third world country without food and no shoes and no uh, no care and no medicine, you know, but I was never attended to as a child with parents from 10 on in any meaningful way. You know, like it's hard for people who even grew up with me, like you or other people who were saw me, to really understand the depth of my aloneness in those years. It's profound, and so that complex trauma, which comes, which stays with you, and is powerful. And and for me, again, I didn't even look at it until I was in my late thirties. So that's you could argue getting a pretty late start at it, and, but it, and it was a process of you know, a long process to sort of make sense of it and be able to like understand it in a way that allowed me to have a different relationship to it. So it wasn't holding me back in lots of ways. It was painful. So we're, we have, we've done a lot of talking so far. Well, I think in some ways this all relates to the loss for me of my mother. Um, And, and, and the sad part for me, the hardest part is the loss for me happened at a young age, even before I stopped talking to her. That's what it feels like. I think that's the point for me about this whole experience is I don't think about it a lot these days at, at all, and it doesn't weigh on me the loss now because I feel like I've experienced—I experienced it many times throughout my life, losing my mother. Uh, and again, I don't blame her for the way she responded. I feel sad mm-hmm. about the way she responded because she could never see me and hear me or un- try and e- try to understand me. She just couldn't handle it because she she had a really hard experience herself, which. You know, and I don't know if she ever really dealt with it. She says she did, but didn't look like it to me. But again, that's just me. I don't know. But it affected my ability to be in relationship with her. But I, but the loss happened for me a long time ago. It's That's why it's a different kind of loss than like losing my dad from cancer or losing your mom or your dad from illnesses. I mean, and the other thing about that, which is interesting, and this something you said earlier about losing your mom and like, you know, she was 93, right? 93, 92, 93. Right. So there's something I think different about losing your mom when she's 93 mm-hmm. that feels normal. Like you were saying, it feels like, yeah, she lived a long life. She knew she did there. You know, that felt I mean, it doesn't feel good to lose a parent, but that felt kind of like, OK, it felt like this is the life cycle. But losing your mother when you're 10 
is challenging and losing your mother again when you're 28 and when you're 36 and when you're 42, you know, over and over and over again is kind of like a gut punch to the soul multiple times, right? Because all I ever wanted from my mother was to Mm. feel like she offered me a safe Mm. place to be me. Like I could be me and it was okay. And she would, and I wanted that thing they say in movies and TV shows is that they're always there for you. My mother said to me and to my daughter, by the way, like I, if you want to deal with the past, like I I don't want that, but if you don't want to go forward, great. So if you want to have a relationship solely on my terms that completely diminishes and negates your actual experience of me, that's fine. And, and I feel that's to me is like a sad statement that she made because she can't see that any differently or so it seems. So I feel that loss for me has been, is like a reoccurring trauma because it's beat, it's happened over and over and over again throughout my life. Right. So that's the complex, the PTSD part. It's this recurring Mm -hmm. thing that keeps coming at me from the experience. And then the emotion that follows that, that loss over and over and over again. And eight years ago, after my dad died, I just decided like, I couldn't take that Mm -hmm. pain. I couldn't take that gut punch anymore in my life. I was like, you need to hear me or I can't be in a relationship with you. And my mother chose to not be in a relationship with me. And that's the part like you going back to what you said is I can't imagine a parent making that choice. We'll continue this conversation next week on part two of losing your parents. Well, we'll hear about Joshua's decision to build his mother's coffin and about my time living with and taking care of my father during the last seven months of his life. For Joshua Beckett, I'm Kenny Benjamin. Thank you for listening to this very special episode of Locks in the Bagel. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week on Locks in the Bagel.